everyone. Anthony Fantano here, Internet's busiest music nerd. Hope you're doing well, and it's time for another edition of the Needle Drop Podcast, our weekly review roundup podcast where we give you the best segments from our YouTube channels throughout the week. We are hitting you guys with one review after another in this episode. I have some track reviews lined up, one for the new Kanye West track, Brothers. He's throwing it back to the days of the the college dropout on this one. Don't miss it. Also, the new Post Malone single, Goodbyes, with Young Thug. It's quite sad. It's quite sad. Be here for it. I'm also going to be talking about why the new pop trio record, Neo Theater, from the group AJR is, is not good not very good. Also loving the newest record of Prince Demos titled Originals. I'm going to be loving on that. Going to be loving on the new Kieran J. Callanan covers album, Return to Center. Just wait till you hear the amazing concept behind this album. Also the new Tom York record, Anima. And I'm also going to be talking up the latest record, the latest collaborative record from Freddie Gibbs and Madlib, two modern day hip hop legends coming together for a new album, Bandana. Also have a special exclusive segment from our ever-popular Let's Argue series about certain type beats that you might find on YouTube. My thoughts on that. And that is going to be it for this episode. So stick around, be here, get ready, strap in. Let's go. Ba-bam! Hey, buddy, did you hear the news? It's track review. And it is time for a track review of a brand new song from none other than Mr. Kanye West. Before we get too deep into it, I do want to quickly mention that I have some live dates coming up in August in Massachusetts, in New York, in Connecticut, just three days in August. Link to the tickets down below. Hit it up, hit it up, hit it up. So this new song from Kanye premiered on the BET series Tales last night. It's titled Brothers. It features none other than Charlie Wilson. Just thought I would come on here, give it a try, give my thoughts. There seems to be quite a bit of commotion around this track because of where Kanye seems to be going stylistically with it. So without any further ado, Kanye West, Charlie Wilson, Brothers, let's give it a try. Let's give it a shot. Let's see what this track has to offer. Ba-bam! Okay, this track I thought was kind of lovely, and just like many people who have been talking up this song have been saying, yeah, it does feel a little bit like throwback Kanye West. He's going back to the glamorous pianos, to the sort of dusty old school beats, to the understated delivery and flow, to more of the gospel influences, uh, where uh, I, I think much of that is manifested in uh, Charlie Wilson's vocals on this track, his uh, harmonies and singing on this cutter absolutely beautiful. Uh, Obviously, it's a very short song that I guess is meant to just be incorporated in the television shows. So you're not really getting like a huge, huge bite of the track. Who knows if this is just, you know, a small motif meant to just be written into the series itself, or if Kanye West has like more to this song. If the latter is the case, I would love to hear more of this track. Again, a lot of what's here does feel like old Kanye, even down to the lyrics, which deal in a lot of themes of brotherhood and friendship and family and supporting one another and being there for one another and caring about one another, but also being a flawed person who doesn't live up to this ideal that they're setting for themselves because families aren't perfect. Uh, even that feels like a throwback to, you know, the days of uh, late registration and college dropout. Uh, still, all that being said, though, I'm not surprised Kanye would develop a new track that is going back in this direction because this is part of what I had already said in my video talking about the Kanye West Sunday service series where he seems to be dipping back into these sounds of soul, these sounds of gospel. He seems to be consciously referencing older parts of his career. And I don't know, it seems like Kanye is feeling nostalgic for that era for one reason or another. I think it 
seems fitting that he would write a track in this tone, in this vein for this particular TV show. So because of that, it may be difficult to hear this and say, yeah, this this sounds like where Kanye is going to be going next. Uh, th- that, in fact, could just not be the case at all. But if we're looking at this from the angle of what was the last major thing Kanye was doing, and that is that Sunday service series and his redemption arc past that, he could be heading in this direction where he is coming out with more music in this style. Uh, structurally, there's not really a whole lot to this track as it is pretty short. There's not like strong choruses or a bridge or anything like that, but the beat is nice. Charlie Wilson's vocal placements are great. Kanye West's lyrics are uh, heartwarming and thoughtful and compelling. So even without a whole lot of structure, even without a whole lot to the track, there are a lot of likable things about it. It'll be interesting to see if Kanye further indulges in these sounds into the future. And I think that's basically all I have to say about the track right now. So Post Malone, brand new single. I was hoping he wasn't going to spend 2019 too quiet. Looking for a new album soon, Posty. Looking for a new album soon, bro. We had that single from him a little while ago. Wow, that I thought was okay. He also had that big moment on the Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse soundtrack that so many people were making a big deal of. But Goodbyes, featuring Young Thug, could mark a new sound, a new era, a new something. Let's see if that is, in fact, what happens on this brand new cut. Uh, Post Malone, goodbyes. Let's give it a try. Ba-bam. Oh my god, that was that was so melodramatic. That was that was very melodramatic. I, I have positive things and negative things to say about this track. Mostly positive, though. I didn't hate it. I didn't dislike it. I mean, the stuff that rubbed me a little bit the wrong way with the song that I feel like I could acclimate to a bit more with a couple listens is uh, I thought the Young Thug feature was a little too eccentric for this track, uh, which instrumentally and vocally is incredibly smooth and uh, very slick. I would say this is one of... Post Malone's slickest productions yet, uh, and it's it's almost to the point where it feels cinematic, like it feels like this song would be more appropriate for a movie soundtrack than an album. Uh, the chord progression at the core of this, which also bugged me a little bit, uh, we, we've heard this chord progression a million times before. In fact, I would say we've heard several different variations of this vocal melody before. It's very familiar. It's a very tried and true progression and and melody. I like the lyrics. You know, they, they do kind of have this bittersweet tone to them. And I feel like in terms of this lane of sad white boys incorporating their sad singer-songwriter songs into an aesthetic that borrows so heavily from modern trap production, because it is a trend right now. It is a trend, and Post Malone has very much contributed to making that trend what it is today. Uh, I feel like Post is still kind of at or near the top of the pile with a track like this, because Goddamn. Again, the lyrics are bittersweet. They feature this depiction of, I guess, Post Malone being on the emotional edge in terms of this relationship that he has going on in the song. It's falling apart. We've got to say goodbye. I'm not good at goodbyes. Again, very melodramatic and I guess as stereotypical as a breakup song could possibly be. But breakup songs of this style are very much a valid form. They're a trope. They're a genre in themselves. And as long as that's the framework we're functioning within to judge this track, I don't think it's that bad. In fact, again, I would say I like the tune. I like the melody of the track a lot and I could see that alone taking this song very far. Again, I feel like the reason I appreciate it and the reason I like it is because I've I've heard songs that sound a lot like this one before, and those also have been massively successful. Listening back to it, there are elements on the chorus that I feel like you could map sections of Radiohead's creep over. So again, structurally and compositionally, we've heard pop songs that sound just like this before, but what separates this track away from that pack is that It's using more modern production. Post Malone, in my view, 
has a very impressive vocal performance on this track and a vocal style that makes him stand out in the current hip-hop and pop landscape. Post Malone also continues to, in my view, successfully ride this transitional point between pop and hip-hop. Of course, these two genres have never sounded more alike than they have in any other point of popular music history. And Post Malone is obviously not uh, the reason that that is the case. I mean, there are artists that came before him that helped contribute to that, but he is taking advantage of the blurring of those lines, especially on tracks like this. He's taking advantage of the blurring of those lines in a way uh, that few other artists are, in my view. I think that's most of what I have to say about this track. Aside from a few minor critiques, I pretty much like the song. I think it's an enjoyable song. This new AJR record, it's not good. AJR is a pop trio hailing from New York who I have talked about before on this channel, though this is the first time I have reviewed a full-length album of theirs. You may remember back in 2017, the trio's last full-length record made it onto my worst albums of the year list, as I felt like The Click was just a very cheap, unlikable expression of millennial pop music. So, of course, going into this new release, uh, my expectations weren't really much higher, though I guess I can say after paying more attention to the finer details that AJR presents, I, I have a, a, a better appreciation as to why it's not all that great. You know, on the surface, there are a lot of elements about neo-theater that are not that bad, or, you know, just could be perceived as, eh, this is relatively inoffensive. I mean, this just sort of sounds like the kind of thing that kids are listening to. It's not blatantly offensive or edgy or in terribly bad taste, but God, is it derivative, uninspired, and, and coming from uh, just, just a very odd sentiment. For one, aesthetically, stylistically, instrumentally, there's not really an idea on this record that doesn't seem like a blatant ripoff of either 21 Pilots or producer, rapper, songwriter extraordinaire John Bellion, whose very obvious influences coming from the worlds of pop and hip-hop, as well as like Disney soundtracks, also pour through into AJR's songs as well on this record for some reason. I mean, if these guys were Owl City, like, 21 Pilots would be Postal Service, essentially. And I feel like thematically, AJR shoots for a lot of the same emotions on the lyrical side of things. It's like the band is obsessed, and I kind of remember this from some key tracks off their last record, with presenting listeners with this state of arrested development. It's like mentally and emotionally, I know I'm an adult, but I'm still like living out my youth right now. I'm, I'm stuck. I feel like this bears out in a lot of tacky and really annoying ways on tracks like Birthday Party and 100 Bad Days, as well as Don't Throw Out My Legos, which is easily one of the most ridiculously titled songs I have heard in a long time. And not to say the title is pointless, it does relate to the theme of the song, a thematic device or concept that comes up again and again and again on this record, and that's basically taking adult, grown-up, difficult, or complex emotional situations and trying to present or interpret them through, I guess, these childlike experiences. It's like taking bad things that are happening to you and then trying to write about them from the perspective of a toddler. <laughs> I'm not sure at all. Like, what? what the point of that is or what makes doing that so interesting or exciting. Not to say children don't have valid perspectives and emotions on things, but an adult trying to write from the perspective of either a child or write in a way where it would just be easy for a child to understand. And again, not sure what the source of this is. It could be as a result of this state of arrested development, or it could be them writing with in mind, we need this to appeal to younger listeners that maybe wouldn't be able to take the full brunt 
of these difficult situations, so we need to water it down in a way where they can relate to it more easily. Either way, the end result just sounds like a less edgy 21 Pilots, as if you could be less edgy than 21 Pilots. What's worse than the perspective that AJR writes from are the terrible hooks that they work into their songs. They're so tacky, they're so overblown, they're so stereotypically millennial, with big horns and bright group vocals and hip-hop beats and faux dramatic instrumentation. This album is essentially what millennial pop sounds like to people who think that all millennial pop sounds bad. This bears out in the head-crushingly annoying choruses of tracks like The Entertainments Here, which sounds like a song Eminem would have made if nothing bad had ever happened to him ever. There's also the totally unnecessary and sudden incorporation of In Heaven from the Eraserhead soundtrack, the melody, the lyrics to that song. If you've seen the film, you, you know it. It's a pretty stunning moment in the film. Uh, suddenly, in the second leg of the cut birthday party on here, AJR just kind of breaks into it, and I'm disgusted. I don't get how the works of David Lynch could possibly speak to your soul, and then you would make an album like this. Unless you're to watch a movie like Eraserhead and just think, whoa, this, this, this is a pretty cool, crazy movie. There's also the track Dear Winter, which is so quaint I want to puke in my mouth every time I hear it or think of it. It's an acoustic ballad about one's future kid, but you haven't met your kid's mom yet, and it's difficult to meet this other person, though Though once you do have that kid, hey, here, here's a bunch of things that, that I'm uh, trying to tell you beforehand, like it's, it's, it's a letter to you. And God, the amount of quirk that is that is being forced into this track, it, uh, it, it, it hurts, it burns. The most unlikable thing about this song, though, is that you have chosen the name of your kid before you've even met your significant other, like, naming your kid isn't going to be a collaborative process with that person. That person may have their own opinions as to what to name the child. And assuming the both of you are just going to arrive at that name because you had just already chosen it or imagined it beforehand is, is yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's uh, maybe the reason you're having a hard time finding someone. It's a kind of crappy attitude, frankly. But as annoying as that and many other moments on this album are, what takes the cake for me really, truly, and honestly is the track Beats which is, I don't know, some kind of commentary on the popularity of the band and whether or not they're relevant enough to get uh, a, a sponsorship from Beats by Dre. That's literally what the song is about, and Beats by Dre is mentioned numerous times in the track. It's all over the chorus. It's like basically doing an advertisement you're not even being paid for. I imagine the audience for this album is gonna be pretty young, and at this very early point, you're going to essentially present them with this image of no artistic integrity, no personal integrity, me and everything I make is just a billboard for you to throw your products on top of. We're living in late stage capitalism anyway. Fuck it. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, there are a few hip hop influenced instrumentals on this record that I think are cool. I like the barbershop quartet vocals that are presented toward the very start and the very end of the record. But outside of that, I, I just found this project to be a, a trash heap. Neo Theater. It's, it's not good. And it is time for a review of the new posthumous Prince album, Originals. This project is an old but newly released collection of songs from R&B and synth funk legend, Prince. Even though there's probably a huge amount of songs in the now unlocked music vault of Prince, the amount of commercial leaks we've heard from it since his passing have been very few in number. We had last year's Piano and a Microphone 1983, which was a very short collection of bare piano and vocal performances from Prince himself that showcased the man's raw talent, a pretty low-risk venture commercially considering how stunning the performances on this thing are, and even if people don't care for it, most fans will most likely look at this record like it's a live album or something and just move on. Additionally, this project doesn't really leave an artistic blemish on Prince's legacy, which I think is very important to maintain, because putting an artist's previously unreleased music out there after their death is a lot like making a statement on their behalf, one that they may have structured in any number of ways had they been able to do it themselves. Thankfully, as a release, Originals is a pretty low-risk venture as well, as it features songs Prince had already 
already released in other contexts. Essentially writing these songs for other artists like Sheila E. or Kenny Rogers, musical ventures such as The Family, or girl groups that he was connected to at the time like Vanity 6 or Apollonia 6. So without a doubt, a great deal of hardcore Prince fans are familiar with most of these tracks. And even casual listeners will instantly recognize the Times Jungle Love or the Bangles Manic Monday. And of course the track Nothing Compares to You, which Prince originally wrote for the family, but then Sinead O'Connor blew the track up with her own version that was a major hit. So I guess you could argue in a way Prince has already ordained the release of these tracks. They've already seen varying degrees of success when released under the names of other artists. In that respect, I can't really deny how smart it is of Warner and NPG to come out with a collection of this type. Now, I know what you might be thinking. Anthony, just because these songs were released by other artists doesn't mean that Prince's versions are good or that the sound quality of them is ready for the public's critical ear. But no, being the perfectionist that Prince was, these demos were fully decked out instrumentally. And there are really only a few tracks on this thing I would dare call rough or even vaguely unfinished. The song Noon Rendezvous is pretty bare in its presentation of just vocals and piano, but it's still a really solid, beautiful song. Love Thy Will Be Done instrumentally is easily one of the more repetitive and, and basic cuts on here. Plus the vocal layering on the track is, is not all that well placed. It sounds like a bad Bon Iver mixing job. Dear Michelangelo has something off about it as well, sonically. It's like the vocals and the bass and the barely audible drums just kind of bleed into each other or just mix in this very odd way. It's very, very muddy, and there's something off-putting about the track Wouldn't You Love to Love Me as well. When orienting the track list on this project, the label definitely left some of the messier tracks toward the end. Generally, though, the material on this project sounds very, very good. It's not the high-gloss production of Purple Rain, but I think that's a, a bit of a high bar to set here. At the very least, the production on this record is on par with a great deal of the R&B and funk and synth pop coming out around this time. The original demo of You're My Love sounds nearly as good as the Kenny Rogers version, just with less reverb, less sheen. It's just not as dolled up. But still, every essential musical element in the song is clear as a bell. So not only are the writing and the performances on this thing so good, but it's interesting as a Prince fan to hear him produce tracks and sing in a style that maybe around the peak of his relevance he, he wouldn't have engaged in some of this stuff on his own records because it could have been seen as uh, just being out of character. These songs Jungle Love and 100 Miles Per Hour are fun, unapologetic, funk party anthems. But lyrically and aesthetically, they're not really close enough to the vibe that Prince was typically putting out there in his music around that time. Also, the track Holly Rock, which was originally released by Sheila E. This song is a pretty early adopter of this funk rap blend. It's kind of amazing to hear Prince spitting bars over this funk instrumental with a flow that would typically be found on like a Curtis Blow record. I'm here and I'm trying to say everybody should have fun. One, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one. I, I don't, I'm just, I'm, I'm just riffing. We also have a really jerky electro track with incredibly deadpan singing on the song Makeup. This track is not exactly the delivery that Prince was known for. Ultimately, it feels more like an artsy synth-punk meditation than it does a Prince song. The opening track, Sex Shooter, is part of the course for the so raunchy, it's almost novelty type songs that Prince would write for some of the girl groups he was working with at the time. For example, Vanity Six's Nasty Girl. I'm kind of sad that's not on here. I would absolutely kill, I would kill um, to, to hear Prince singing those lyrics. I have to keep praising Sex Shooter though, because this song is, is a beautiful, catchy, inadvertently hypnagogic banger. It's a dusty, long forgotten synth funk gem. It's like something Ariel Pink would do, but uh, with, with much more humor and sillier vocals. I'm not entirely sure what to make of Prince's intentions and his performance on the track You're My Love, because when the song originally came out on that Kenny Rogers record, he was credited for it with a pseudonym. What I can say is that Prince's singing on this track sounds as if he is trying to sing in Kenny Rogers' typical voice in his register. It certainly allows you to view Prince's songwriting ability, his artistry from a different angle, 
through a different lens. My biggest critique of this thing is that a handful of tracks toward the very end of this archival release are noticeably rougher in sound when comparing them to the tracks we're presented with in the very first half, in the very first leg. It's not like the album slowly disintegrates in quality or anything, it's that, you know, toward the finish it just gets a little uh, shaky. Though the landing is definitely stuck by placing the biggest of all of these songs, nothing compares to you at the very finish. Still though, I think this project is great. It was a great listen. It was a fun listen. I'm very happy it came out. As somebody who uh, has loved multiple Prince albums, uh, thinks he is one of the greatest songwriters and uh, instrumentalists and producers, this was a pretty significant release for me. It's definitely going to be one of my favorites of the year. I'm feeling a light to decent eight on this one. Transition into the next review. And it is time for a review of the new Kieran J. Callanan album, Return to Center. This is the newest full-length album from singer, songwriter, multi-instrumentalist Kieran J. Callanan. One of the most exciting artists from Down Under at the moment. In 2017, he released one of my favorite albums of the year. That would be Bravado. It is a great album. I love this record. It's fantastic. But there were a number of occurrences post the release of this album that seemed to distract away from the album, or maybe they drew more attention to Kieran than he would have had otherwise. It's probably a little bit of both. There are a number of things I could bring up, but to mention a few, one, the bronzed skin and nudity and stream of on the front cover of Bravado. That was one thing. There's also singer Jimmy Barnes becoming a huge meme as a result of his appearance in the Big Enough music video. There was also a quick flash of everything that was under Kieran's kilt that he was wearing at the Aria's Music Awards ceremony, which sent Kieran to court. He ended up getting off on a good behavior bond toward the start of last year. I gotta admit, Kieran's existence and the way people react to it stirs up all kinds of feelings in me. What about it do people not get? Through the lens of Iggy Pop and David Bowie and punk rock and gender-bent new wavers, isn't everything Kieran's doing in his art, both musically and visually, pretty well established at this point. Furthermore, isn't it clear, especially in Kieran's early work, that his explorations of gender are exposing just how performative some elements of our sexuality are? Isn't the title track of his 2013 album Embracism a pretty bold take on violent, toxic masculinity? And the song Big Enough, which by many is perceived as being like a meme anthem, is literally a track about bringing together all peoples globally, saying we can live in harmony, the world is big enough for all of us. It just seems like the world is either too socially conservative or normy or hung up on fake wokeness to really appreciate what he's doing. And I can't decide if he just wasn't made for this era or if his knack for stirring controversy is proof that he's exactly what we need right now. Maybe for his own mental health, the promotional rollout for Kieran's new LP was pretty standard. I also have a sneaking suspicion that the title of this project, which can be interpreted in a number of different ways, might also have something to do with his emotional well-being, returning to a place of peace and safety and familiarity. But that is without me even going into the hilarious concept behind this project. Return to Center is a covers album. But it's not simply just that. Apparently, Kieran spent the budget for this project on tons of equipment and instruments from Guitar Center. Everything played or used on this record allegedly came from Guitar Center. The plan was then to record the album within the grace period between the purchase and the end of the return policy, so then he would get a full refund for all of the instruments he purchased for the record, and that's exactly what he did. Everything on this album <laughs> was literally returned to center. And I think that definitely impacts the sound of this record in a few ways. For sure, instrumentally, this thing is not nearly as lavish as anything off of Bravado. Return to Center is certainly not as loud or as dense or as experimental, but still this record presents a pretty fun, vibrant sound. And I think Kieran uses the very short amount of time allotted to him for this record to throw out in these performances what comes naturally to him, and that is sweet, sweet camp. 
camp. The opening track, Life is Life, kicks off with these hilariously corny synth horns playing out this fanfare passage as Karen gears up for a celebratory and a grand rendition of a totally forgotten pop gem from a group called Opus, originally an Austrian pop act. And believe me, Kieran's version sounds nothing like the original, which is like a pop reggae flip from the 80s. Which I guess isn't too weird when considering what groups like The Police were doing around this time. So Kieran does take a lot of wonderful liberties on this track, though it's not the case for every song here. For example, Kieran's renditions of Randy Newman's Pretty Boy, as well as Ultravox's Vienna, are pretty faithful to the originals. But what's even more significant than the renditions that Kieran brings to the table on these tracks are the songs that he actually chooses. It's such a purposeful mix of musical triumphs forgotten by time and deep, deep pulls from the worlds of synth pop and new wave. Not only does the track list of this thing provide a very clear and wonderful musical map for a lot of what inspires Kieran's sound, but it also explains his artistic ethos as well. Many of the sonic palettes and lyrical themes that have turned up on Kieran's past couple of records show up in this track list in very bold ways. We have songs about love, we have songs about celebrating life and the world, songs that explore sexuality and gender, songs that express a difficulty with fitting in the world, and also songs that are like a meta-commentary on music itself. These songs are not just being chosen because Kieran thinks they're good songs that he wants to share with his audience. I would say Kieran's song choices on Return to Center are tantamount to him painting a self-portrait in a way. And it's rare that I hear a list of songs chosen on a covers record that feel like they are serving that purpose. Because given what I know of Kieran's character and his past output, I would guess he deeply identifies with the narratives and themes of many of these songs. We first have the song The Homosexual. Given Kieran's outward appearance and the way he presents himself artistically, I'm not surprised he would cover a track about being attacked as gay just for being different. And not only talking about how that's eating away at your psyche, but also pointing out how that at its root is a result of society's insecurities around sexuality and a whole host of other things. There's also a very weird sub-narrative in this track of our protagonist essentially going on these sexual conquests as revenge against the men who label him and malign him. I also like the instrumental on this track. It's sleek, it's sexy, the finger-picked acoustic guitars are wonderful. The song Pretty Boy is very different in tone instrumentally with very somber pianos and understated vocals, but I'm seeing some common narrative themes in terms of being misunderstood, being in the midst of very violent surroundings. I really was wondering as the album continued just how much does Kieran see himself and see his own experience in these tracks. And I feel like that connection ended up being confirmed in his cover of Public Image Limited's Rise, the UK post-punk outfit's biggest single ever. And Kieran essentially uses this track to make a statement about the legal fallout past his little flashing endeavor. He laces into the track audio from numerous news broadcasts talking about the situation. I mean, he must see the track's message of conflict and opposing sides as being applicable to the situation. I love the way instrumentally this track develops. Kieran essentially flips this song, which was once a, you know, pretty melodic, raging rock tune, into this blissful folk rock anthem with wonderful acoustic guitars, a great drum beat, soulful group vocals. The song The Whole of the Moon isn't too different from the original version of the track, but Kieran's vocal performance on this one is a stunner. It's such a powerful pop rock anthem that is just grand and showy and larger than life. The song Signed Curtain is originally a track from Canterbury scene Hot shot. Robert Wyatt. It's a funny track that essentially is taking the piss out of song structure. The lyrics are literally, this is the first verse, this is the second verse, this is the chorus. You get the idea. Kieran takes this track, which originally had been imagined a few different ways, and he turns it into this loud, distorted wall of grunge guitar noise. It, it rocks so hard. It rocks so hard, and it's very funny. I also love Kieran's very sinister and low-key rendition of It Takes a Muscle to Fall in Love. I admit that I didn't read enough about this project before I embarked on my first listen to it, and this was the first song that said to me, wait a second, this is a cover. Is this a covers album? Because the first time I remember hearing this track was when M.I.A. covered it on her Maya project. And it's kind of funny, the original tune from Spectral Display is solid. It's a solid song, but the instrumentation is so bare and it's so skeletal and it's so basic. Nearly any songwriter covering this thing could 
take it in a myriad of different directions. I think Kieran takes some incredible liberties on this track with the acoustic guitar licks, the funky drums, the subtle synth swells. In a strange way, it's like listening to two covers in one because while, yes, this is a spectral display cover, the instrumental feels like something that would have been on a classic Depeche Mode song, a band that's undoubtedly an influence on what Kieran does as well. Kieran's interpretation of Australian songwriter Billy Fields' You Weren't In Love With Me isn't as loud or as colorful as the original, but the emotional pain he displays on this track really pours through very boldly. I think the Ultravox track is great too. It's kind of the large finish the album needed. And even though these songs are not Kieran's songs, I feel like after listening to his renditions of them and getting a, a grasp as to how he relates to them, I definitely have a better sense of who Kieran is as an artist and as a creator. I didn't quite get what he saw in the Randy Newman track on this album, honestly. I think it's a one of his weaker songs. And the title track of this thing is the only original on the album, which is essentially just a, a weird guitar pedal effect drone with some added freaky vocals at a few points. It's a decent palate cleanser, which of course is right in the center of the album, but honestly, I, I could take or leave it. Overall though, I think this thing is a great record. I loved it. I had a lot of fun listening to it. Even though it is a covers album, I see it as artistically valid as anything Kieran has come out with up until this point. And I think fans coming into this thing with a patient ear and aren't just orbiting around Kieran for the memes or the drama will get a lot out of this project. Feeling a decent too strong eight on this one, transition into the next review. And it's time for a review of the new Tom York LP, Anima. This is the newest musical solo effort from Radiohead frontman Tom York. It's also attached to a short film. I'm not going to go over that in this video, but still, this is a bit of a multimedia endeavor. If you have been following Tom's exploits, you know that he has been keeping himself pretty busy as of late. At this point, it's only been three years or so since Radiohead released their somber but powerful A Moon-Shaped Pool. And last year, Tom released a massive hour-plus soundtrack attached to the Suspiria homage directed by Luca Guadagnino. So recently, we've had no shortage of Tom York in our lives, and he just keeps it coming with this new album. Anima. Honestly, there have been quite a few Tom York musical extracurriculars that I've found pretty underwhelming. Adams for Peace, as well as Tomorrow's Modern Boxes. But 2006's The Eraser, though, was definitely a respectable debut solo outing. Its eerie, glitchy, IDM-inspired brand of art pop has aged fairly well through the years. I definitely like it more than The King of Limbs, and it's unquestionably more consistent than Hail to the Thief. It's been well over a decade at this point since Tom has put out some solo stuff that's really left a strong, positive impression on me. As a result of that, I will admit I didn't go into this new LP expecting to be wowed or blown away, but I was surprised at just how much I enjoyed it. Because Anima is easily Tom's most immersive and detailed album since The Eraser. I wouldn't say he changes his style up too much though, he's still very much inhabiting these spaces of IDM and glitch. But the instrumental palettes on Anima offer more space, more ambience, surreal or even slightly psychedelic production. From Traffic to Runway Away, the tracks on this record offer cerebral, synthetic soundscapes, progressions that move in a very subtle and linear fashion. It's like I'm listening to all of these meditative but slightly dark and dystopian musical motifs or sonic mood boards, as the appeal of many of these tracks I think comes down to repetition or creating an entrancing vibe. Plus there are only a few tracks where I would say the lyrics and the vocals are super clear, super upfront, and actually guide the tone of the song. For example, the song The Axe, whose point of view lyrically is coming from a place of paranoia and violence. The haunting mantra on this track certainly has stuck with me post-listening to this album. I thought we had a deal. As Tom is singing in this very open, very wet mix, like a, a very, very tiny-voiced creepy ghost. There's also the stunningly dejected Dawn chorus, uh, whose vocals are very deadpan, maybe the most understated that I've ever heard Tom on an album. Again, I think the power of this record comes down to the cycle hypnotic beats, and synthesizer tones that are thick, rich, analog. I wouldn't be surprised if Tom spent hours just 
twiddling knobs to get the synths to sound in just the way that they do on this project. Whether he's playing a literal analog synthesizer or just doing it all through an interface or something, I'm not sure. I will also say a majority of the sounds on this record are mixed immaculately. I'm not sure why, but projects like Tomorrow's Modern Boxes as well as Amok just felt so dry and flat and lifeless to me. Even though Anima is just as minimal, if not more minimal instrumentally than those records, it feels like it has so much more presence. Again, sounds generally on this record, fantastic. Maybe with the most major exception of the clunky bass line on the cut Impossible Knots. How well engineered this album is becomes overwhelming at points, like on the track Not the News, where the bleeps and bloops that are kind of guiding Tom's voice through the track are eventually enhanced with these lavish, wonderful, gorgeous string sections on the back end of the cut. This track also features one of Tom's most pained vocal performances on the entire album. Pretty powerful. Runway Away has this unique stillness to it that I don't think any other song on this record has. As I listen to this one, I feel like I am not listening to a progression or a sound piece, but I am just existing in a space. It's intriguing in that sense, even if it's not one of my favorite songs on the record. The rest of the tracks on the album, though, in my opinion, are kind of uniform in just how apocalyptic, how eerie they are, the track last I heard, as well as traffic. Where the album ends up faltering is when Tom hands over a composition or a progression that's just a little too repetitive, a little too one-dimensional or one note. I am a very rude person is most likely the biggest offender on this front, also the closer, also again, impossible knots. I think the way to put this album simply is that for People who have been aware of Tom York's work for a while now, but uh, haven't been convinced uh, artistically of his solo genius as of this moment, this record is most likely not going to convert you. This project is very much in the same stylistic vein of a majority of Tom's work. Also, I think many of the flaws of Tom's past records have also carried over onto this one. I also have a hard time imagining this album just being listened to in a casual sense. For as dreary as The Eraser is, I think that album is probably an easier listen by comparison with Anima. This is very much a, a mood album that I would recommend specifically for like a, 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 a very solo headphone type of experience. And in that context, it's very good. It's just not an album I imagine many people just throwing on whenever. For those who have gotten quite a bit out of Tom's solo work so far, I wouldn't be surprised if many of them saw Anima as Tom's best work, if not at least, on par with the eraser. Having said all of that though, I personally am still not blown away by this record to get to that point. Even though I do love the sounds, I love the mixes, I love a lot of the meditative progressions, I would need some stronger lyrics. I would need some stronger melodies. But as an album that seems like Tom mostly taking some abstract shots over synth progressions and beats he's been developing, it sounds really cool. I'm feeling a light to decent seven on this one. Transition. <laughs> into the next review. And it's time for a review of the new Freddie Gibbs and Mad Lib album, Bandana. This is the new collaborative album of Gary Indiana rapper Freddie Gibbs and hip-hop production legend Mad Lib. At this point, I don't think either really needs that deep of an introduction, especially since the last time both of these guys linked up, they came through with one of the best hip-hop records of the decade. Of course, I'm talking about 2014's Pinata. Not only was Mad Lib in rare form on this album, dropping some of his best beats since his crossover with MF Doom in Mad Villainy, but Freddie's work I had been aware of up until this point. But on this record, it really floored me. He was on a level of focus and flow and just uh, conceptual topical writing that he just hadn't been on before. So I would say Pinata is certainly a case of Madlib and Freddie coming together and bringing out the best in each other. So I'm here hoping they can do that once again five years later with the follow-up to Pinata, Bandana. Now the teaser tracks leading up to this album, in my view, were all pretty good, 
So there was no reason not to assume this album was going to live up to my expectations. And I mostly think that's what Bandana does. I think that's the purpose it mostly serves, living up to expectations. For the most part, if you've heard Pinata, you have a pretty strong idea as to what Madlib and Freddie are going to do on Bandana. You're getting cold-blooded cocaine raps with clever one-liners, interesting cultural references, and skilled rhyme schemes, and a decent level of topical focus as well. The song Practice, for example, is a tense, introspective cut about being caught cheating or just not being faithful. Freddie on this song essentially f***ing up his home life. And in the second verse on this track, Freddie breaks up with the streets, I guess in the same way that he did with his mistress on the first verse. Generally, the track is about just putting yourself on a better path that is going to benefit you and those who you love, those around you. We also have the glamorous and smooth crime pays, which is pretty self-explanatory, though not entirely a glorification of crime. A lot of the track is about the risks being taken, the costs of existing in the underbelly of society. Gibbs talks about someone he knows contracting HIV on the track. He also goes into his own drug dealing, saying that he's slanging, but he's still a slave. The song Fake Names deals in a lot of the same issues as well, but the tone of the track is so much more fearful and paranoid. Shit's so real, gotta use fake names. And on the second verse of this track, Freddie delivers this flawless, masterful flow over one of the most unexpected beat switches on the entire record. Meanwhile, the track Cataracts is like this blissful inebriation anthem with a somewhat nostalgic kick. The song is like I'm just locked in a hazy dream state. It's so fuzzy, it's so sleepy. Meanwhile, freestyle shit is an incredibly soulful kickoff to this entire record. It's got some vintage horn samples and some very generous vinyl crackle as well. Freddie weaves rhymes on this cut about his transition from street hustling to rap stardom. His mantra on the song essentially being when this music sh wasn't moving main, I might as well be moving things. For the most part, Freddie sticks to his guns on this album of drugs and crime and violence, but while also acknowledging the dark side of that lifestyle, and the way our political system influences the current state of things. One of many examples of this on this album are the Obama and incarceration lines on the back end of Flat Tummy Tea, also the ongoing drug war and the way aspects of it disproportionately affect the black community, and this consistency from Freddie over the years isn't really a bad thing. So few rappers are operating at his level and in his lane at the moment. Lyrically, I think the lowest point on the album is the really quick Maxine Waters line on the track Palm Olive, where Freddie drops a, a somewhat anti-vax line, and I get why a guy like Freddie would be skeptical of things like the government, the powers that be, the medical system. Incredible amounts of medical injustice have been leveled against the black community for generations, and it's still going on. It's still costing lives. Still, though, in a time where it's routine to see headlines talking about measles outbreaks, Endorsing anti-vax in any way, shape, or form is kind of irresponsible. All that being said, though, let's try to get to Madlib's beats on this thing, which I think can be a little hit or miss here. Shortly after the release of Bandana, Madlib hopped onto social media to proudly proclaim that he produced every beat on this record on his iPad. And given the sound and the tone of some of these instrumentals, that's not something I'm super surprised to hear. Not to say the beats on this thing are bad or cheap or super simple. In fact, most of them are in the same soulful, easygoing, sample-heavy, vintage vibe that you are used to most Madlib beats being in. But some of the effects he throws on these beats do clearly have a very digital tone to them. A lot of the drums, the percussion hits feel very clean, feel very clear on particular tracks. Even though things do feel a bit more synthetic this time around on a majority of the songs here, it does not stop Madlib from achieving his usual magic. It does get a little weird when Madlib tries to push outside of his comfort zone, occasionally resulting in interesting moments like massage seats, which sounds like a really cool old school dance hall flip. But then we also get the first half of the track, Half Main, Half Cocaine, which is an honest to God trap beat. Yes, Madlib is making trap beats. You got the hi-hats, you have the kicks, you have the sub bass, you have those snares, you have the kind of eerie, minor chords playing back and forth. It's a little nocturnal, and it's a bit reminiscent of the material off of Freddy's Shadow of a Doubt. And sure, it's not bad because I think Freddy mostly makes the track, but does Madlib step in and show an incredible amount of prowess in this particular instrumental style? 
Not really. There's also Situations, and there's also Gat Dan, but both tracks, as a result of the new interface Madlib is working through, feel very, very clean. Especially the first of the two. Not that Gat Dan doesn't have its other issues as well, because uh, Freddie's moany, uh, barely holding on to pitch singing on that song isn't exactly a, a high point either. If he was going to do something like this, where he's effectively not that great of a singer, I wish he would just kind of ham it up a bit more and just enjoy the flaws of his voice. But one more time, because I do want to stress this, this change of interfaces does not affect the magic of cuts like Education, as well as Giannis. In some respects, I think Madlib switching over to the iPad on this record has made some of his instrumentals a bit more dynamic. Because there are quite a few interesting beat switches on this LP, certainly more, if I remember correctly, than what was on Pinata. And it's a pretty cool feature to the record. And speaking of features, there are also quite a few features on this record that are pretty sick. We have a stunning soul chorus from the likes of Anderson Pack. Easily one of Pusha T's best features to date. I loved that cold-blooded line about him being invited into the White House even though Obama knew he was a criminal. Yes. Bay, aka Most Deaf on here was great, as was Black Thought. The only feature that I really wanted more from was uh, was Killer Mike, who handled the chorus on Palm Olive decently, but when Killer Mike appears on your record, like, I mean, you want to utilize him to the greatest degree that you can. Overall though, Bandana, great album. Even if I don't love it as much as Pinata. I don't find it to be as immersive, there's not as much material here, not as many impressive hooks, and Pinata just contains tracks that you're just not gonna outdo. Songs like Real, which are easily one of the most brutal diss tracks of this decade. A few of Madlib's beats, in my opinion, were just okay, but I cannot deny that Freddie I think upped his game a little bit on this LP. I think Madlib, in my opinion, shone a bit brighter on Pinata than Freddie did, but I think Freddie is who really kind of stood out as the prime voice, the prime artistic voice on Bandana. All that being said, though, this record is still two of the best right now doing what they do best, and that's it. I'm feeling a decent to a strong eight on this thing. <laughs> Most tight beats are clickbait, as they don't sound like anything like the artists they put in the title. Yeah, that's essentially the state of things right now in the type beat scene on the internet. At one time, when producers were first starting to upload beats that were like, a Kodak Black type beat, a Cardi B type beat, um... Yeah, there was actually like some some specificity to that, but these days, yeah, it's it's really just a, all all a clout game. That's that's what it's progressed into now that it's sort of become popular and established to do that, and it's become well known that that you can basically get your name out there by uh, doing that sort of thing. And that is going to be it for this latest episode of the Needle Drop Podcast. Everyone, thank you very much for listening. You're the best, you're the best, you're the best. Make sure to follow us on social media, at The Needle Drop on Twitter, AFantano on Instagram. Also, The Needle Drop at YouTube, Fantano on YouTube as well. And TheNeedleDrop.com to not miss a single segment or post that we drop throughout the week. Also, shout out to Jonah for putting together this episode as well as he does every episode. And thank you very much for subscribing, listening. Make sure whatever page you're on listening to this podcast at, you are uh, dropping a review, dropping a comment, saying something positive, helping us out, and also listening to the next episode. We will see you in the next one. Anthony Fantano, Music Reviews, Podcast, Forever. Forever.